Here is a motion picture film. Let's tidy up this tangle of film by putting it on a reel. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Film Swap. My name is David Seeley, and uh, today I'm on top of the world, Ma, because <laughs> I've got uh, a really good show here for you today. I'd like you to introduce you to a couple of my little friends, and uh, they will be my esteemed co-host, the ecstatic gaucho himself, Mr. Jonathan Pritchard Barrett, and... Today, we also have, as a very, very special guest, uh, the godfather of film podcasting, <laughs> uh, a veteran yeah. of film podcasting, uh, the host of uh, what I think is one of the best, if not the best, film podcasts that is out there. And uh, it's called Criterion Reflections. Uh, and so please welcome everyone, Mr. David Blakesley. Well, David, how are you? I'm doing very good. You may kiss the ring. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that very kind introduction. I feel like, yeah, I'm not just number three. I'm I'm moving up the ranks to number one there. So I'm very <laughs> happy to be uh, joining you guys. I've enjoyed listening to uh, the Film Swap podcast. I heard you and talking with my friend Richard Doyle, just listened to that one last night as you're talking about Grindhouse Cinema, and very happy to take my turn uh, talking talking movies with you guys. Brilliant. Well, it, it's great to have you. You've been uh, kind of number one on my hit list <laughs> of uh, potential guests to get on the show. Um, I've actually been a, a guest on, on your podcast uh, actually quite a few times when I was thinking about it last night. I was going, actually... Over the you know the last sort of four oh, yeah. or five years, I've probably been on there, you know I don't know a good at least a good dozen times I would have thought by now. So. Well, you and Richard are definitely two of my best go tos. If I've got an obscure little nugget that's come up on the Criterion Channel or even a DVD that is just kind of back in the catalog and kind of obscure, uh, you and Richard have been really great troopers. And even some of the bigger titles like the Lone Wolf and Cub series and stuff, it's been a real great and uh, joy for me just to get to know you and very happy to return the favor and you know, kind of help you make another, another one of these episodes. Oh, brilliant. Well, tonight we've picked a, a really special topic, actually. Yeah. We thought because... It's actually, uh, we're recording this at the very tail end of October 2023, and of course in 2024, both here in the UK and in the United States, there's going to be well, what we call here a general election. There'll be, uh, there'll be an election to, to, to uh, decide on, on our next governments. And uh, of course, so that immediately uh, means it's appropriate to start talking about organized crime. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Gangsters. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, you know, I think yeah. you could make an argument for that. Oh. And uh, so I think um, tonight we wanted to talk about gangsters, gangster films. Because right. obviously there, there's quite a, you know, throughout the history of cinema, there's been uh, gangster films have been a, an integral part of of uh, films so we thought we'd uh tonight have a, a go have a go at talking about gangsters and uh 
their representation in cinema. So uh, I don't know, uh, David, if you want to tell us first about the, just uh, quickly introduce the film uh, that you selected tonight. Sure. Yeah. So when, when David pitched the idea of gangster movies, I thought, well, let's do a Japanese gangster movie because the Yakuza subgenre of Japanese film is an interesting variation. Uh, it's it's not perhaps the, the immediate thought that some listeners may have. Uh, you know, of, of you know, the other film we're going to be talking about is kind of right in the prime there of of you know organized crime here in the USA, which is where I live. Um, in fact, not too far uh, from the location of the other film. But I thought let's just do a Japanese variation on that. So I originally selected Youth of the Beast because that's an interesting uh, sort of genre exercise by Seijun Suzuki. But that's a harder film apparently to get. Uh, you know, to to find in in the UK because the only disc version of, apparently is currently out of print. So we went with Branded to Kill, which I think is a very good option as well. It's a little bit more on the sort of the deconstructive side of the gangster film, and we'll have a lot more to say about that. But that's what I've chosen uh, just to kind of take a look at the Japanese variant of the gangster genre. It's a great film. What a yeah. film! Oh yeah, yeah. it's oh, yeah. brilliant. It's brilliant. Um, and Jonathan, do you want to uh, tell the listeners tonight a little bit about the film that we jointly decided on uh, for tonight's show? Yes, well, we chose Scarface. I suppose many listeners will be going, ah, oh, Scarface, excellent, Al Pacino et al. No, we chose the original one from 1932, directed by Howard Hawks, <clears throat> and uh, it's made pre-code, that's the Hayes Code, that sort of slightly changed the uh, sort of... Uh, feel of Hollywood movies, um, it, they became, they were less able to show sort of nudity and things like this. And it was a bit, uh, so it's a sort of, it's a, it's interesting because it's yeah, pre-code and it's one of the early, early gangster films, I suppose. That's a great film. Yeah, definitely. I think when it, when, uh, when Scarface came out, there'd only been a couple of, uh, films prior to that, the, from Warner Brothers, a little Caesar and public enemy with, uh, James Cagney. Uh, yep. and I think they were obviously such big uh, phenomenal hits and made such a, an impact that then after that, that we sort of started to get into an established genre of, yep. uh, of films about, uh, criminal, the criminal underworld and organized crime and things like that. And Scarface is obviously quite a prototype of, of that, of, of, you know, a lot of the tropes and things that we kind of come to mm. associate with now have all been, uh, you know, we're all very much on display in Scarface. It wrote the rules yeah. slightly, didn't it? it? And you mentioned Underworld just now, David, um, and there's another silent film called Underworld by Joseph von Sternberg, and I actually see his face peeking out over your shoulder there in that Criterion box set from a couple years oh, ago. Yes. So, so yeah, yeah, but, but yeah, so Underworld and really wasn't was... that written? It was, the screenplay was by the same chap who wrote the screenplay yeah. for Scarface. Yeah. Ben Hecht. I, I wanted to start by just talking about sort of the, the appeal of gangster films and why were the, why was this the sensation of, of, you know, like I say, organized crime, not just, you know, bad people doing bad things, but a whole syndicate, a mob, a, mm. a whole kind of business, if you will, that's uh, really, you know, capitalizing on people's, uh, you know, uh, in, inclinations to, you know, 
pursue their vices, whether that's alcohol, sex, narcotics, uh, gambling, you know, all, all the uh, forbidden things that are out there in society. Uh, there's some enterprise out there willing to kind of get you what you want, even though the rules say you're not allowed to do that. And I think cinema has its, has its ability to bring us into these kind of worlds virtually uh, so that we can sort of live that life without running the risks inherent with, uh, especially at the you know the criminal lifestyle and and all the legal repercussions and sometimes the physical dangers, uh, you can sort of have your hour and a half of a thrill and then sort of put your hat back on and button up your coat, head back home to the missus, and you know get back to your respectable routines. And I feel like you know cinema, especially as we're getting into the talky era. Um, that that virtual experience of of sort of being able to walk in the path of these notorious mobsters uh, kind of gave the audience a little bit of a thrill, uh, but obviously ran up against the uh, the limitations of what the censors would allow, uh, both within the studio and then within different jurisdictions. As as uh, you know, the the creators wanted to kind of press those limits and and right right, right up against the taboos, and people would say that's too far. We can't let you go any further. And that's one of the fascinating backstories of this, of this film and, and kind of what led to it being unavailable and really suppressed for quite a few years, as well as all the production problems to even get it released in the first place. It's quite time too, when the, this film just came out just after the years of prohibition as well, mm-hmm. where, where there was, which was quite controversial, sort of um, policy at the time to ban alcohol and so this huge sort of subculture of of uh, criminal uh, sort of distribution of alcohol sort of uh, was quite prominent at the time and i guess too in this stage we're we're talking about the time of um you know just after the the big crash of 29 and we're in into the depression era so we have these people who are in the underworld trying to, um, uh, you know, make their way in the world and try and reach out for that success. And perhaps in the the more sort of legitimate means of business and, and things like that, people didn't have access to that. So the idea the criminal, uh, you know, people having to take matters into their own hands and do things a bit shady was mm-hmm. kind of the only way maybe that they could get ahead or, yeah. or you know, sort of climb uh, the ladder to success, if yeah. you want to call it that. <laughs> Power, prestige, you know, the, the quote-unquote good things in life, you know, the, the money, the women, the clothes, you know, the entertainment, uh, the, you know, the goods, you know, the jewelry and the cars, all the... You know, all those things that, especially in the economic conditions of the early 30s, were really difficult to find. And yet, you know, you can't help but let your eyes wander and you see those lucky few who are living the good life while the rest of us are standing in bread lines. Hey, I want to get me in on that action. How can I get some of that, you know? It's, it's, it's an interesting part of history as well, because <clears throat> occasionally you see a sort of pony and cart or a horse and cart. Mm-hmm. And uh, so this is at the sort of juncture where, I mean, cars are generally t- have taken over, but it's it's not as if carts and horses have completely disappeared from the streets of uh, mm-hmm. America. Uh, and um, I guess it's also the rise of nightclubs. Were nightclubs really a sort of thing before the mm-hmm. sort of the 20s or 30s? Barely. 
Um, there were saloons and pubs and things of that sort, but this uh, this upscale style of you know of that, linen tablecloths and big bands and you know men and women in their fine clothes and dancing that was a new thing, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So there's so lots of new new things. I mean, it's telephones, I suppose, as well. Mm-hmm. Some of them are candlestick ones, but then you've got others more more modern, I guess, which is to pull off the the handle but what would you recognize as a telephone yeah um, yeah it's it must have been c- completely thrilling for people to see uh, lots of this stuff but technology seems to be, play quite a part in the film doesn't it because even when uh, paul mooney's character first gets his hand on one of these tommy guns these you know sort of <laughs> early yeah. machine guns he's so excited and he's yeah, like look yeah. at this thing look at what this could do this is so amazing but there does seem to be that preoccupation with sort of, uh, you know, consumer goods, new technology, you know, uh, you know, um, progress in those kind of areas seems to be a, quite an underlying sort of subtext in the film, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. And then you mentioned Paul Mooney, and he is such a charismatic presence in this film. I mean, he really is, you know, I mean, the old cliche, he's the guy that every guy wants to be, and he's the guy that all the women want to get with, you know, just kind of, he's he's the magnet, he's the center of attention. And even though you, you first meet him at the beginning of the film, when he's just kind of a, a hired gun, a kind of a right hand hit man to, you know, one of the, you know, middle managers in this underworld mob, uh, the middle manager, Johnny Lovo, decides he's going to break away and go up against his boss and uh, start a little rebellion. And, and there's there's uh, Tony Comante, the Paul Mooney character, who's going to carry out his hit to kind of open the scene. And uh, and, and you, you just see him climbing and climbing that ladder. You know, his, his suits go from just ordinary black gangster suits to some fancier fabric and, you know, pinky rings. And, you know, his hat's got a little jaunty angle to it. So, you know, he's, he's just aspiring and, and you know, to a guy who's sitting out there down on his luck and kind of wondering if he's ever going to find that big break to separate him from the masses. You know, Paul Mooney's a pretty charismatic guy. He's been through some rough stuff. I mean, the scar face, the big X on his cheek shows that he's, he's, he's climbed a treacherous road, but he's, he's survived up to this point. Uh, But only, only to a certain point, I guess. Uh, (laughs) Not not to jump ahead too far, but you know, there's always got to be the moral to the story. (laughs) <laughs> One of the, um, but uh, he is a great, extremely charismatic, but he does uh, come up against not just sort of, well, people, enemies within the, his mob, but the, the other mob is uh, yeah. head, headed by uh, basically uh, Boris Karloff, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. or a character he's called uh, Tom Gaffney. Right. And um, so, uh, I mean, Tom Boris Karloff, I suppose, is better known for his horror uh, films, but here, well, he, yeah, but... he was billed as Franken Boris Frankenstein Karloff. So this is after <laughs> his kind of star-making role there. But yeah, he, this was just gets... sort of the film he did immediately after Frankenstein, Who's which right. sort of made him a star. Mm-hmm. You know, so the, it would have been, you know, this this was his next big sort of uh, high-profile gig, wasn't it? Right, without the makeup, right? Yeah, he's. Absolutely, he's also terrific, terrific. Oh, character. yeah, absolutely, yeah. And he's got an extraordinary face, so sort of bony. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 And and I guess, you know, it's there's kind of an ethnic thing going on here, too, because the oh. south side mobs are Italian and the north side is is Irish. Yeah. And yeah, so Gaffney being an Irish name. And so there's clearly a, a line drawn and you have your turf, we have ours and don't cross that line. And yet, uh, you know, Tony's ambitions are so great that it's like there's there's a lot of jack out there let's let's go ahead and expand our territory and mm-hmm. again push those limits and go, go up against the boundaries and just march right across them because his his appetite his lust for life knows no bounds he, he just wants it all mm. And there's that ruthlessness about it as well. Yeah. Like is, oh, yeah. is, is quit. I mean, they never really, um, they, they only sort of allude to it, but they don't really definitively explain why he has the big scar in his face. No. At one point he says, oh, I got this in the war. And then another time, you know, he kind of implies something different. But you don't really know. But you can see this is someone who's not phased by violence at all. Right. He's completely ruthless and has no compunction about killing people and, um, you know, much yeah, the, the, like politicians that we have today. Oh there's, yeah. Yeah. The scar is a warning, you know, like I've been through it. If you think you got something, I can, I can take it. If you want to dish it out, that scar is my survivor signal. Uh, show me what you got. <laughs> part, but it's yeah. like, almost like a suit, part, part of his, mm-hmm. his outfit and hat. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So we, you talked a bit, David, about the, the mm-hmm. fact that the, the, that um, Tony is um, of Italian descent and yep. that the, his mob, uh, they, they're Italian, much like the later remake that Brian De Palma made where, where he transposed that to the Cuban community mm-hmm. and the, these mm-hmm. people who came over um, from Cuba. Um, there was a lot of controversy, wasn't there, from the Italian community with this film. They protested and, and had some, you know, they, they took um, umbrage to the fact that it was implying that Italian-Americans were, you know, criminals and part of these gangs. Well, like that. yeah, it, it definitely played into some of those negative stereotypes. And I think it's important uh, to understand, especially maybe for younger listeners, that Italians or, or people from the Southern Mediterranean were definitely very much looked down upon in, in sort of what you might consider more traditional or quote unquote mainstream American society by that, the, the, the white Protestant, you know, side of the American hmm. demographic. And so Italians were seen as those kind of shady, untrustworthy foreigners uh, and, you know, bringing all of their corruption into our, you know, our family values and blah, blah, blah. So, that that portrayal definitely did stir up some sensitivities and there's even that little moment within the film which i think was kind of put in at either the insistence of the studios or some censorship boards where there's a police commissioner who at times is looking straight into the camera and challenging you know the audience what are you going to do about all this crime yeah. and corruption and there's that italian man he says he brings a disgrace to my people you know so <laughs> so it's kind of like you know that's that's sort of the counterbalance like we're not trying to make this about all italians or that italians are inherently criminal even though they are in some ways playing to some of those cultural assumptions and stereotypes so they're kind of having it both ways you could say 
And the same with the Irish. You know, the Irish were also despised. Uh, although by this point in American history, they'd become a little bit more assimilated because they'd been here longer. You know, the Irish came yeah. over like in the mid to, you know, 1800s, where the Italian immigration was a lot more recent than that. So, you know, it's it's always that first wave that, you know, gets the scorn, it seems, of the American populace. And another film that does this is uh, The Gangs of New York, mm-hmm. where yep. it's a sort of, you know, the, the old New Yorkers, as it were, and then all the Irish uh, sort of... Uh, that's a sort of, and I suppose sort of ethnic conflict, as it were, is a theme in many gangs. Well, it's it's all staking out turf. You know, which side of the street do you control? Which blocks are yours, and which blocks are theirs? And do you respect those lines, or is there a dispute between who should get, you know, ownership, if you will, of not of the property, but of the criminal activity that goes on there? You know, that's that's basically the the heart of the conflict when it gets to this level of organized crime. And, and that's, you know, you think of so many of the great gangster movies, things that Scorsese did and and others, where it really is about power and control. um, And, you know, the disputes that arise over that and the bloody ways of settling that business that uh, result. When you said about, yeah, what are you going to do about it? Because the interest, one of the interesting things about the film is it starts off as this is a sort of, plays it as a morality story. Oh, yeah, yeah. That uh, this is sort of, you know, this is the the awful stuff that's going on at the moment. You've got to stand up for it, uh, stand up against it, so write to your um, sort of congressman or whatever it is. Yes, we got to pass some laws and, yeah, all of that stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Sort it out. But then, this is in the sort of title cards at the beginning, but then as soon as it starts, it's just relishing yeah. That's right. We got the pieties out of the way. Let's yeah. get down to the business now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And apparently, uh, Howard Hughes uh, had said to Howard Hawks when they were first discussing the film, he said, You got to keep it moving. You got to have lots of action. You got to have lots of, you know. So there was obviously, you know, a bit of an exploitative um, angle to this in terms of, you know, make sure you got lots of you know, uh, lots of action, violence and and killing and stuff. And we're going to ramp it all up because that's what people want to see to make it exciting. Which in a way is, again, catering to people's vice. I mean, you know, watching a movie is not quite the same as, you know, going to a brothel or, you know, bootlegging whiskey or, or uh, yeah. you know, uh, holding people up or, you know, there's there's different levels of violence, you might say. But Howard Hughes understood that exploitation mindset of like, just give them what they want, get their money and build your empire. There's also some quite sort of beautiful bits in the film as well. Oh, absolutely. Some great filmmaking. Mm -hmm. Really beautiful. He's sort of standing in front of a curtain with the sort of wind blowing the thing and the silhouette. And then there's... uh, there's also seems to be this sort of X motif that basically the scar on his face sort mm-hmm. of appears in the background at various points through the film as well. Yeah, there's um, that scene of the Valentine's Day massacre where they kind of, in shadow, they line up all the gangsters, seven of them, uh, you know, raise up your hands, they gun them down. This was, again, kind of a recreation of an infamous incident that took place early in the career of Al Capone and kind of made him sort of a national level celebrity criminal, if you will. And then as just as those guys are gunned down, the, the camera pans up and you see all those X's that are kind of part of the rafters of the building. But you could also say each X represents one more criminal, you know, uh, leader, you know, 
boss guy who got who just got snuffed out. So, yeah, fascinating visual motifs there. Yeah. Well, I was going to mention about this because when I was uh, doing a little bit of research for the film, the the t- it says uh, here that the the tune Tony whistles in the film is the sextet from Donizetti's opera Lucia de Lammermoor. And it says this tune in the opera is accompanied by the words that translate to what restrains me in such a moment. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought that was really interesting because in in various bits in the film where Tony's about to uh, commit some sort of a heinous act, he whistles that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) What what restrains me in this moment? And I thought that was really interesting. It reminded me of uh, Peter Lorre whistling in the Hall of the Mountain King and Fritz Lang's M. Just those little sinister musical themes that kind of pop up when something terrible is about to happen. (laughs) Yeah, that's brilliant. It's brilliant stuff. Um, Could we talk a little bit while we're... Because, Jonathan, you mentioned about the Hayes Code and that this this film uh, was released just... Just prior, I think, when did the, did the Hays Code come in? In about 1934, I think. 34 is when it really kind of clamped down and everybody yeah. had to sort of sign on. Before that, there had sort of been a voluntary, you know, we'll respect these rules because there there were certainly concerns, even back to the silent era, about just where films were going. Um, and there were different ways of trying to regulate it within the industry, but they just did not want to have federal legislation coming down because that would have just really made things difficult. So, yeah. But 34 was kind of the turning point. Yeah. So this film really was quite uh, sort of quite scandalous and, and uh, was very much um, sort of protested by censor, you know, by censors and things. And Howard Hughes, who was the producer, uh, had to spend a lot of time and energy trying to work around that. Apparently at the time in the United States, uh, much like they used to do here in the UK as well as that, a lot of the uh, censorship in cinemas was sort of regional, just sort of based on, on, on a specific town or a specific sort of state and they all had their own rules and regulations. So literally you could show a film in one state and then you might see it somewhere else and it would, they would have different bits cut out mm-hmm. because each uh, area would take their own decisions about what was appropriate and what wasn't. And so Howard Hughes had to spend a lot of time. He basically released the film in areas where they didn't censor the film and so that he could kind of build up enough of word of mouth and enough sort of getting people excited about it so that then he could use that as leverage to sort of get the film put out in other areas as well. Yeah, yeah. So, if you cut the film too much, then you're not going to make the money because the people won't get what they're coming for. So there really is this kind of power struggle going on about how much will you let us get away with um, you know, to bring this film to to your your, your area because People want to see it. This this is a film that definitely stirred up controversy, and anytime that happens, you know the public becomes curious. They they just got to see it to see what all the fuss is about. One of the interesting things from a sort of modern viewer's point of view is you sort of select, sometimes wonder what was exactly the what were the controversial bits because now there's so much of this sort of stuff oh, is just yeah. fairly commonplace. So yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, it could be little bits, like um, when when they're introducing the character of Poppy, the the glamorous blonde woman. Oh, yeah. uh, there's a scene where she's kind of at her makeup table, then she stands up and turns around and kind of puts her rear end of the camera, and the shot sort of lingers there. And then you see Tony just staring. I mean, the the editing is great because you can see exactly where his sight line is going as he's kind of admiring <laughs> the view. You know, well, in in some sensibilities, that was over the top my goodness you know and there was even implications that the relationship between tony and his younger sister may have some incestuous uh, qualities to it it's not really played out blatantly but his possessiveness and his incredibly strict control over anything she did indicates more than just a big brother's concern for his little sister you know so you know People were very sensitive to all those little hidden messages, and it became a real cat and mouse game to try to figure out what exactly are you implying here, you know. And then, and of course, the violence was pretty brutal, and still is. I mean, it's kind of like wow, they really, uh, they really didn't hold too much back there. That, that's what struck me about watching it this morning, actually, is um, uh, because even though you don't get obviously the splattering blood and the exit wounds and things that you right. might get in films nowadays the violence is quite brutal and quite you know quite effective in terms of its uh, shocking quality and the ruthlessness of it yeah Um, yeah. so i think even by today's standards it does have that sort of jolt of of real uh sort of uh, violent um nastiness to it doesn't it even the implication that in the, these boot, these these uh, speakeasies, these illegal bars where there's not supposed to be alcohol served anywhere, and yet they're packed. You know, this yeah. isn't just a few shady characters on the fringes of society. This is, you know, Main Street USA coming down for a little covert, you know, liquor or or, or show or whatever. And so again, that that implication that uh, this is kind of a widespread thing, especially if you think about this film being shown in maybe more rural areas or more yeah. small towns. They're depicting a, a way of life that is seen as, as wicked and depraved. And we just don't want that big city stuff coming into our community. And so, you know, we, we, we don't maybe have that same sensitivity that existed back then where people were, or at least certain authorities were much more protective of their populace. Whereas the other side was saying, Hey, these are what your people want to see. You know, don't, don't fool yourself. You know, they're not as innocent as you might be assume or, or think they are. Yeah. Yeah. It's a bit like seeing, I'm sure lots of people, some small cinemas out in the country, there would have been like one car in the town, two mm-hmm. cars mm-hmm. and seeing, getting there and seeing hun- you know, hundreds of cars driving around would have been extremely, uh, exciting as well yeah yeah and and just yeah you know, the excitement just you know the 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 action the glamour you know the, the all all the trappings of the good life the material goods at least uh mm-hmm. again compared to ho-hum podunk small town you know out in the country there where there's just not a whole lot going on this uh creates an intrigue or a fascination to want to see what the big city action is really all about so yeah just a very interesting sort of uh, cultural skirmishes going on that are in sort of the the penumbra around around a film like this and the fact that it kind of went into the vault for a number of years because howard hughes just got sick of battling the censors you know uh again sort of just enhanced the, the legend and fortunately i think for us this is one of those films that 
lives up to the hype. I mean, I had not seen it before uh, I agreed to be on this podcast, but I really was pretty impressed overall with just the effectiveness of the filmmaking. And, and like, as you said, John, some of the really beautiful kind of early film noir type of scenes, you know, some of those, like when, when um, I think when Tony has kind of set, set his sidekick little boy played by George Raft, who also went on to become a pretty prominent gangster movie star himself. Um, he, he six little boy on Lovo, Johnny Lovo, his former boss. And now uh, Tony is kind of moving in and taking over the territory and putting the old guy behind him. He goes back to the apartment and meets with Poppy. And there's all of this stuff that's implied, but never spoken. Poppy's where's Johnny he says, where do you think? Pack up your stuff. And it's, it's a really grim film noir type of scene with, with really deep blacks and shadows and all of those things that you think of like, post-war 1940s Humphrey Bogart trench coats all of that well this is before all of that but really set the template that I think would become sort of even more fully refined and like what we think of as the classic film noir period from like 45 up until the late 50s you know so you know, this is this is a very exceptional work of Howard Hawks who's one of those great you know I can do it all type of directors and uh, yeah he really did set the template very effectively here yeah well, actually, that's a good lead-in, David, because I thought it'd be worth sort of just talking a, a little bit briefly about uh, Howard Hawks, because obviously he, he wasn't a prolific uh, filmmaker, but he was obviously quite a seminal one. He made, I mean, he's made loads and loads of really classic uh, mm -hmm. films. His Girl Friday, Bringing Up Baby, uh, Only Angels Have Wings, The Big Sleep, Red River, Rio Bravo. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a man who uh, was was you know, um, made a lot of really, really great films. And uh, like you say, they're always quite, he, he was a bit of an iconoclast, wasn't he? He mm -hmm. apparently he was, it was one, he was known for not really getting on with studio execs and, and uh, he was always um, <clears throat> sort of running afoul of, of his bosses and sort of saying, no, no, we're going to do it my way kind of thing. And so as a result, he didn't really like sort of, um, uh, John Ford and people like that who tended to work for specific studios for long stretches of time and be under contract. He tended to just make one or two films and then move on to some somewhere else and do something else. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, um, and across all different types of genres too. I mean, he had his certain themes, you know, his, his films are typically about the world of men with women playing particular roles within all of that. Some typically just to sort of complicate things, you know, but, uh, it really was, was quite brilliant. I think, I don't know if this was like one of his earliest films or just one that really put him on the map, but, uh, pr pretty cool. He, he goes right back to the silent era. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He, he sort of worked for Fox, I think, um, mm -hmm. for, for years making just sort of, you know, standard sort of genre picks, which is something that, um, we could tie in a bit with, uh, Seijin Suzuki when we talk about him. Oh yeah. Because for sure. they kind of have quite a similar background in that they worked for a specific studio, mm -hmm. just churning out kind of, you know, standard kind of B picture sort of genre pictures. And then at a certain point he, he was, uh, got, got an opportunity to make, uh, sort of more uh, bigger productions. And I think this is one of the ones that you're quite right that sort of broke him because he sort of befriended, I'm, I'm not quite sure what the circumstances were, but he befriended, uh, befriended Howard Hughes, yeah. who's obviously a very interesting uh, historical figure in and of himself. 
he's quite famous as in his later life, he became a recluse and sort of hid away in his hotel room and let his fingernails grow allegedly <laughs> and all these oh, things. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but he was like a very innovative, uh, wealthy industrialist who was very much, you know, uh, on the uh, cutting edge of sort of aviation and things like that. And he, he sort of developed his fortune, but he also had an interest in films. And he yeah. produced, I think he directed a couple films himself or produced mm -hmm. them. And then he be befriended Howard Hawks and asked him and said, would you come and do this thing for me? Why don't you come and make this uh, film? We're doing a film about Al Capone, but we're not going to call it Al Capone. We're going to call it something else. And uh, he kind of coaxed him and convinced him to uh, come and, and work on this thing for him. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, again, both of those personalities. I mean, I remember as a child hearing about Howard Hughes. Uh, this is like, there was that kind of fake uh, biography or autobiography by Clifford Irving, who was a pretty successful writer who apparently was brazen enough to concoct an entire book that were supposedly the the memoirs of Howard Hughes that that Irving had gotten in personal interviews with the with the man himself, who at that point was already this kind of notorious like hermit you know this eccentric billionaire uh who it, it's just one of those th ideas that gets into the imagination at least a, a young boy like myself of like wow you got all the money in the world and you could do anything but you're this kind of creeped out isolated hermit you know who doesn't want to go out and, and be in the general public like just how weird that is you know but uh that's how what i remember hearing about howard hughes uh, but you find out what a fascinating life he was he really was kind of this uh you know uh, I don't know, maybe it's a, a, a negative association at this point, but like an Elon Musk type of character who is kind of very wealthy, dabbles in a lot of different types of industries and kind of moves and shakes things for better or for worse. Uh, here, I feel like, yeah, Hughes was a very important character in the development of cinema and and also in in sort of setting those those boundaries of where cinema could or couldn't go. He was definitely interested in exploring and expanding the range of stories that could be told. Maybe it was for reasons of kind of, you know, just ginning up the audiences, but also you could sort of put a better twist on it. He, he just wanted to foster creative expression without having to be too preoccupied with staying within the limits. If, you, if it's happening out there, if you want to tell the story and it's all of its gory, glorious detail, let's go for it. Let's just put it up there and respect the audience to be able to figure it out and how they're going to respond to whatever that message may be. Oh, one other thing I should mention about uh, sort of Howard, Hugh, Howard Hawks and um, the, the film is that the two female characters, or two main female yeah. characters, mm -hmm. uh, because there's a thing, the Hawksian woman. Yes, uh, yes, yes. Sort of a hard-talking hard, hard woman, I think it is. Maybe. Oh yeah, they're tough. They're tough dames for sure. Tough dames—that's <laughs> the word, uh, the phrase. And um, so, in this one, there's uh, the uh, Scarface himself, his uh, sort of girlfriend, and Poppy, then yeah. there's another. I think the girlfriend of um, his sort of sidekick as well. Well, yeah, his his it's his younger sister, sister. right? His right. Sister. So, little boy has a relationship that's kind of under raps because Scarface would not tolerate his right hand hitman That's messing it. around. I mean, he doesn't even want his sister to leave the house practically, much less go to these kind of parties or travel in his own circles. I mean, the, the hypocrisy and the blindness is apparently 
not a, an issue with him. I will live my criminal life and could die at any moment, but you will stay home and be protected, you know? And that's yeah. this weird kind of chauvinistic uh, control game over, over women and even the way he treats his mother and her objections to the trouble he's getting himself into is another thing. But yeah. um, There was one other thing I wanted to mention about Howard Hughes as well, is because he was seen, I think, by some of the more uh, established film studios mm-hmm. because he was a, a very wealthy man and he was producing these films independently. Right. So I think um, people like the, you know, the Warner brothers and mayor and, yeah, and all right. them sort of saw him as this sort of upstart who was kind of coming in out of nowhere and sort of trying to steal their thunder and muscle in on their industries yeah, and I think that might have had a little bit to do with sort of a lot of the controversy around the censorship and things might have been prodded by these heads of these studios who were well, sort of trying yeah. to do things to sabotage his mm-hmm. success as as this independent producer. Well, and we talk about organized crime. I mean, again, I'm not saying the studios themselves were criminal enterprises, but they definitely had their turf. <laughs> they did not like this uh, intruder yes. coming from the outside. I mean, the studios, especially back then, were extremely controlling. We we can't even fathom how rigidly they 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 controlled the careers of not just their crew but their actors. If you signed with a studio, you could not film for anybody else without getting express permission. And if you asked for it even, you might find yourself out of a contract. You know, they were they were that rigid and that tight and and that intense about calling all the shots. And so here comes Howard Hughes with all that independent freewheeling money and that just upsets the whole scheme doesn't it mm-hmm. like a one-man studio yeah sort of yeah he was indeed and he had the resources to be able mm-hmm. to do it whereas a lot of independent producers wouldn't have the luxury of, of expensive sets and going out on locations and spending months on pro- protracted productions and yeah. Uh, hiring really good, uh, uh, you know, performers and technicians and things. But right. Howard I mean, Hughes had those resources and he could basically do whatever he wanted and really throw everything into making sure that the films came out exactly how he wanted. And so I think pretty, they probably yeah. saw that as more threatening than than they would otherwise and the sort of skid row producers and things like that. Right. The production <laughs> values here are, are really strong. I mean, when they're shooting up those bars and saloons, when they're putting a nightclub scene together, it's not just four or five people. Dan- it's a whole room full of extras, and they're all dressed nice, and you got the band going there. Uh, the the, uh, the apartment with the steel shutters on the windows and all the cars and all the bullets flying. It's like, yeah, there there was some, some resources sunk into making this all very vivid and that's the thing this is not a cheap knockoff production this felt right. like a, a pretty lavish studio set and budget and all of that mm, definitely a little bit like the great white set in uh, great great white set in uh, top hat that's what <laughs> yeah we yeah, talked yeah. about that a few yeah. episodes oh ago, sure but... yeah those those were phenomenal you know, productions yeah. back then incredible yeah. lavish uh, sort of sets and the designs and everything um, just in the interest of time, we might have to kind of think about moving on, but oh, I, I just wanted to give you guys the opportunity to just do any, if you had any comments about the the remake, because obviously 30 years later, Brian, <laughs> De, Brian De Palma made a, uh, sorry, 50, not 30, 50 yep. years later, Brian De Palma remade Scarface 
you know, and, and that film is, is quite sort of famous in its own right and is a kind of, I guess, a classic of, of sorts in its own right. And I just yeah. wanted to know if you guys had any sort of comparisons or any comments that you wanted to make in relation to seeing the original uh, and talking about the, the later remake. Well, I guess I'll say it's one of those movies where I, I feel like the director does a great job of playing it both ways, kind of like what Scorsese does in The Wolf of Wall Street. You can you can put this character out there who uh, is either loathsome and detestable and outrageously, you know, cruel and exploitive and and wasteful, or you could say this dude is the baddest ass, awesome, you know, prototype role model. He's living the life that I, I could only dream about, you know. And 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 there's audiences that kind of fall into one of those two camps and can appreciate the movie for what it is. And so whether you're going to have your, you know, your Scarface posters on the wall or a Scarface mirror print, you know, for your, you know, lines of cocaine or whatever, or if you're going to say, you know, this is a pretty gripping look at just how ruthless the criminal world can be and you know it's just kind of a telling it like it is i, I think the movie sort of plays to both of those um it has appeal to both of those viewpoints and uh, you know de palma is a is a, a masterful filmmaker i've certainly been reappraising i didn't have as great of an opinion but i, I saw sisters did a podcast about it a couple months ago and i've been mm-hmm. kind of taking in some of his other stuff and kind of reassessing my own response to his films but uh yeah I, i'm i'm feeling like that's a it's not my favorite De Palma film. It's not one I'm going to be going out and get the the collector set with the shot glasses and you know all, all the paraphernalia, you know, or get the Scarface tattoo or anything like that. But I understand that there's fans out there along that line, and it's a it's a unique piece of work, and I think a very worthy remake to this one for its hmm. time. Yeah, I, I funnily enough hadn't seen it for some reason, and but I started I started watching it. Only got yeah. halfway through it, but I'm going to finish it off. But really, really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, definitely a as you say, a worthy successor. Um, and I love the sort of, you know, just the sheer stylishness of it. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also, the one of the interesting things that struck me was it's the weird sort of late seventies, early eighties uh, style, which a bit like Long Good Friday. So you're not mm-hmm. sure if it's seventies like fashion or eighties fashion. It's sort of this weird limbo part in between. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> There's a little aside, but it really, really enjoyed it too. Well, what struck me about watching the, the 1932 Scarface this morning is that the the story, the the remake, De Palma's remake, very much follows the mm-hmm. story. The, the basic plot is identical. Yeah. I mean, obvi- and obviously in the 1980s, uh, that film ramps up all the violence and the sex and the and the relationship the the sort of incestuous interest that he has in his sister is everything's ramped up a notch because we obviously are in in more permissive times Mm -hmm. but i think even when that film came out it was a bit controversial and had to have some bits cut out of it and things like that so it quite ran parallel to the original in that sense as well it just sort of ramped everything up yeah, uh, to the point where even it was controversial in 1980. What was it? 1983, 1983, right. But it's, it's yeah. definitely a movie that has its own life in terms of memes and gifts and images. It's, you don't even almost have to see the whole movie to get the essence of it because it's, it's used in sort of social media 
in, in mm. so many different ways or there's so many like iconic moments or just the you know the 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 image of al pacino in that character just sort of has a life of its own mm. well i'm definitely i can um quite openly state that in the gump and everything for this episode when it goes out when it gets published out on online i'm not going to uh, go out of my way to specify that we're talking about the 1932 <laughs> version of Scarface. Right. <laughs> I'm right. just going to leave that open so that hopefully, um, you know, people will may find us. Because, uh, but if if people are disappointed that we're not talking about the Al Pacino, Brian De Palma Scarface, apologies for that. But we did give a little bit of time, oh, a little bit of space. We gave, and it definitely is a good movie. It's a film that I enjoy made quite an impression on me in my sort of teenage years when it first came out. And uh, I'm definitely a fan of it. I quite like it. I rewatched it quite recently when the the new 4K uh, sort of Blu-ray came out because I didn't have a copy in my collection. So I thought, right. oh, I'll, I'll pick that up. And, and actually, I really enjoyed watching it again and revisiting it after so many years. And I think it's worthwhile uh, to check that out as well. So definitely. A good companion piece. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. As a matter of fact, I think even when that 4K came out, there was an edition with that where they put out like a box set where they had both film, both versions of the film in it. Um, I didn't pick that one up. I just bought kind of a more. I think that was one. that was the ultra deluxe collector's edition with all the bells and whistles in it. I yeah, believe yeah. that Scarface just got a Blu-ray release, the 32 version that we've been talking right. about, and. I watched this on the Internet Archive, which is a free website, and it's a very good transfer. But I, I think that there, there, I don't know, I should have checked the 4K or the Blu-ray disc out to see if there's alternate scenes or endings. Because I think there, this is a film that did go through some some overt censorship and pieces were, were missing or replaced. That whole kind of written intro was kind of force, forcibly tacked on to the beginning. Yeah, and not only to, to to say you know we we are concerned about the crime wave, but also putting the burden on the viewer. What are you going to do about it? Which yes. I know we've already mentioned. It's like, hey, you're making this my problem now, <laughs> or what? But it, it is kind of an interesting sort of moralistic twist that they sort of were compelled to tack onto the onto the presentation of the film itself. Yeah. Well, I, I watched it on this. I actually, you, this okay, is actually yeah. from Imprint in Australia, yep, the right. Blu-ray edition. But I'm pretty sure there is a Blu-ray edition in the United yeah, States and in the UK you. now. But I think this was the first sort of high-definition commercial uh, release that there was. Yeah. So I picked this up a while back. And it does actually have two versions of the film. It has a what they call the original theatrical version of the film. Mm -hmm. uh, although I don't think from what I've been reading, I don't think that's a hundred percent accurate. I think it's more of a hybrid that it has the original ending and mostly it is the way that it was originally intended. But there are, like you mentioned, some of these things that they've put on at the beginning and some other minor alterations that they made. Right. Right. So I don't, th I'm not sure how, how faithful it is to the actual original theatrical version. But then there's also an alternate censored version of the mm -hmm. film is what it mm -hmm. says. 
So presumably that would have been that subsequent uh, when, when Howard Hughes had to make some adjustments to satisfy the sensor boards mm. and things. So presumably that's what that is. But obviously I chose to watch just the, you know, the original theatrical version because that, sure. you know, would be the most faithful to the original, you know. I don't know, Jonathan, how did you see it? I watched it because uh, we have an old DVD at home which Autumn bought ages ago. Um, oh, brilliant. Probably about 15 years old. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was fine. <laughs> okay. And so, David, you said that you watch it on the Internet Archive, and I don't yeah. know so I, it's, I don't it's, know if any of us know about uh, its availability on well, streaming. Well, I, I found it by going through you know Google search and just doing Scarface 1932. You have to scroll down quite a ways to get to that link. It's uh, The website is archive.org, and then... And then there's a bunch of letters and numbers after that. But the Internet Archive is kind of like a free service. And mm. I guess it's it's lower on the listings on Google because they don't pay Google to put up <laughs> at the top of the search results, right? Mm. But if you scroll down, and I can even send you the link, David, and, and you can put it in the show notes. Well, or we can put it in the show notes. That. That'd be great. Because it's, it's <laughs> like I say, it's a very good transfer. I, I don't know, if, you know if this is the censored version i don't think it is it feels like they got most everything in there but uh i, I am interested in getting a, a copy of the blu-ray just to see what kind of supplemental features and maybe more background information is is uh on a disc like that because yeah i i really took pretty strongly to this and, and feel like yeah i would like to add this one to my collection because i feel like this is this is a prototype for so many great you know, crime-themed films that came afterwards. So it's good to get back to the source. And again, all the respect to, to Howard Hawks as a, a brilliant director and uh, and the the cast I, and Ben Hecht as screenwriter. This this the, the, it has a great sort of making of behind the scenes story as well as the film itself. Hmm. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of Paul Muni actually as well. Mm -hmm. I love films with him, and he was a really really great actor. And uh, so I'm quite partial to anything that he's in. If I see his name on it, I'm immediately interested in checking it out. Um, and, and this is the kind of film that you can go and revisit every couple of years, you know, and right. enjoy it. Like I was totally engaged with it. It was really entertaining and uh, exciting. And, and it's not very long either, is it? It's only no. like an hour and a half and it just zips along. Yep. And uh, it's the kind of film you can go back to. So it's definitely worth having in your in your collection and sort of uh, being able to go back and revisit it every once in a while so uh folks go go and get your copy now absolutely <laughs> um so on that note gentlemen i think unless there's anything else you wanted specifically to talk about scarface i think uh we might um just take a very very brief uh break uh so that we can plug our social media stuff and all that and uh and then we're going to come back and talk about uh, a really brilliant Japanese gangster film uh, called Branded to Kill. Thanks for listening to the Film Swap podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving the show a rating or leaving a review. This helps other listeners find the show. You can follow the Film Swap on social media. We're on Twitter and TikTok at FilmSwap UK, on Instagram at FilmSwap Media, and on YouTube at FilmSwap underscore podcast, and at Facebook at FilmSwap the podcast.
And we're back. Welcome back, listeners, and welcome back, uh, David Blakesley, our guest, and uh, obviously my esteemed co-host, Mr. Jonathan Pritchard Barrett. Um, just a little bit of um, uh, housekeeping in the sense that that little message that you would have just heard, listeners, uh, does not encompass our website. And I just wanted to take a minute to encourage everyone to go and check out our new website. You can find it. It's really easy, and it just trips off the tongue filmswap.uk and if you go there you'll find a, a world of film swap wonders that you can gaze upon at your leisure uh, you'll find links to all our latest episodes and links to our youtube stuff and our factoids and all that kind of stuff and there'll be more prizes and surprises coming uh, out there in the coming weeks and months so by all means uh, go and bookmark the page and go and check it out because it's uh, it's the one place on the internet that everyone will want to to be, <laughs> possibly. Um, and anyway, there was also something else while we're talking about uh, uh, social media and YouTube. I wanted to give a quick shout out uh, to a young man named Bradley Witham. Uh, he's a young man who's a very, very, very talented actor and voice artist. And I had the great pleasure of uh, recently, uh, I was in a production of Spamalot uh, here in uh, at the Epsom Playhouse down in Surrey in the UK. And uh, this young man, he's very talented and he very kindly agreed to uh, record uh, a, a, a little um, impersonation of Klaus Kinski for us <laughs> for a little video that we did uh, just to be a little bit silly and sort of help promote the uh, <clears throat> the latest episode of our show. So uh, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to him and I'm going to put a link to his spotlight page in our uh, show notes as well. So anyone out there who's uh, looking to cast really talented actors and performers, I want you to consider checking this young man out because he's uh, he's very cool uh, and uh, I think you should uh, consider making him a star. I think he's going to go on to big, uh, bigger and better things in the world of entertainment. I'm sure of it. I'm convinced of it. Um, so anyway, on that note, shall we, talking about worlds of wonder, let's talk about Seijin Suzuki, shall we? Yes, sure. David, I'm going to hand over to you because this was a film that you uh, put forward for us uh, for the show today. So I'm going to give you a chance just to uh, introduce Branded to Kill. Sure. Well, Branded to Kill is a pretty interesting uh, kind of entry into the oeuvre of Seijin Suzuki. It's Criterion Spine Number 38, one of the earlier DVDs that they released back in the... I think it was the late 90s, actually, when they kind of switched over from the Laserdisc format. And it's probably best known as the film that wrecked Suzuki's career. For at least around 10 years after this movie was made, it put him on kind of a blacklist with his studio. Uh, he was just a kind of persona non grata because he was just one of those directors who marched to his own beat. Um, he was very prolific. He would do sometimes three or even four movies a year, kind of in the early stages of his career. Had slowed it down to a mere one or two, well, two or three, I think was typically what he was putting out in the, by the mid to late 60s. And this is a 1967 film that stars uh, Joe Shishido, a pretty well-known and in many ways beloved kind of tough guy of Japanese action films of that era. And um, 
it's a black and white film. You know, he had worked in color and, uh, you know, this was a film that he didn't necessarily set out to make himself a martyr, but he had been having some friction with the studios because he would, he would take this kind of boilerplate product that he was being asked to produce. Uh, this was at a time when the Japanese cinema was, or the studio was, was, uh, Shochiku was putting out, um, you know, two movies a week. They would basically release them as double features. And so that's 108 films per year that they're just pumping into theaters uh, because that was kind of the go-to entertainment for a pretty big chunk of the Japanese audiences. And so that means you've got to produce fast and on time. And of course, there's a whole bunch of other guys who are out there cranking them out right alongside you. They, they give you the script. Here's your actors. Here's your two or three weeks or whatever it takes to get this film done. And boom, away you go. And he would do that. But in the process, he would kind of put his own little personal idiosyncratic touches on it and uh, maybe cut away scenes that he didn't think were interesting or fun or important. And uh, in this film in particular, he does this kind of sort of deconstruction type of thing where he's basically whittling away some of the more conventional plot points and just putting all the cool sequences together. Some review I read said this is like a 90-minute trailer of just highlights of action bits, you know? And there, there's truth to that. If this is a movie that the first time you watch it, maybe even second or third time, you're kind of, what's going on here? <laughs> you know, who are these people and why are they shooting at each other, right? Uh, the, 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 the dialogue does contain the pieces that you need to put a coherent story together, but it requires a bit of work. And I know, David, you and I talked about the, the Lone Wolf and Cub series and, and Sadoichi films, where oftentimes the Japanese, you know, the, the appeal of these films is just how complicated and, and multi-layered you can make these plots and all the characters and all the crossing over and twists and turns. This film kind of outdoes even all of that, you know. And it's just a very interesting uh, genre exercise kind of a late development of the gangster, at least, you know, there's been obviously a lot of gangster movies made since 1967, but this is kind of taking that genre, turning all the tropes on its head and putting together what's really a pretty visually stunning and sort of intellectually bewildering plot about a, a, a hitman who's currently ranked number three in the Japanese underworld. And uh, there's a mysterious number one floating around. He knows who number two is. He knows who number four is and number five. But the number one is this enigmatic mystery. Meanwhile, he's also going through some marriage problems. He's got this other woman that's kind of suddenly come into his life who's kind of been a little bit of a preoccupation or obsession of his. And so he's got his, his own sort of personal issues working out here as well as this, you know, uh, suddenly very serious high stakes showdown between him and the number one who eventually does surface. And of course, once once those elements are introduced at the early stages of the film, you know that at some point he's going to have the big showdown with number one. And so, yeah, it's it's a very, it's playful, sometimes cartoonish, sometimes outrageous, sometimes almost incomprehensible. But I, I, I'm very curious to hear what you guys thought of uh, about this film. Um, I've got a lot more to say about it, but I'll just kind of use that as my intro. <laughs> yeah. Jono, do you want to do you want to go next? Well, this film is terrific. I really, really <laughs> good. Enjoy. Yeah. And I came across it because um, I used to run a little sort of uh, film blog about uh, sort of ten years ago. 
Okay. And I was on Arrow. Arrow Films used to send me sort of screeners. And so came in a sort of trend, you know, transparent box and it just said branded to kill on it. I did, that's, it didn't have any information whatsoever. I put it in the uh, DVD player and, uh, yeah, I basically didn't make any sense, but absolutely brilliant. I, and then I watched it again, you know, this week to, to sort of remind myself about it. And it was just as good, if, yeah, if not better. And it's just, it's bewildering, as you say. It, there isn't basically one, one, of the, one of the thoughts that sort of uh, stuck with me afterwards. There isn't a single boring moment or boring <laughs> frame in it. Right, right. There is literally everything has something strange or interesting or offbeat about it. And mm -hmm. it's just so charming and strange and just a sort of, I, I know I haven't seen any of his other films, but it just seems a real one-off, but I guess it's not. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Suzuki, uh, Irv, but uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> it seems very, very distinctive. I, I just think it's brilliant. Everybody should watch it. And, and the sad thing is it's diff very difficult to get hold of in the UK. Oh, okay. Yeah. A, you know, a real shame. More and more people should watch it. So I have to correct a very big error. I said, I think I said that's a sort of Shochiku Studios. It's actually Nikatsu, which is a big yeah. difference. I don't know if you were going to pounce on that, David, but I wanted to correct well, myself. I, I, I didn't want All to the fan mail but, comes but, in, right? Uh, he used to work for Shochiku at, uh, before he moved to Nikatsu. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So, um, um, yeah, there, so you you were kind of on the right track there in the sense that he did <laughs> yeah. work for them at one point. But not um, these films. These these noir films, these gangster films were definitely Nikatsu's product. Not Shochiku was like the highly respectable sort of stately studio of the Japanese system. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And um, yeah, I, <clears throat> I'm a huge uh, Suzuki fan. I, I love his, his films a lot. He... He does, he was uh, at Nakatsu. He made uh, like uh, we talked about with um, Howard Hawks when he worked at Fox. He was just very much just a contract director on the payroll who would just get handed these assignments. And uh, it's amazing that these uh, films were turned out. They literally had three days pre-production. This was standard what they all got for the B films. They had A films. And then they had a B film that would would be the second feature that would be shown in the cinemas, and that's when they, these companies owned the cinema chains as well. So that he would basically just be handed a script, he'd get three days of pre-production, and then they would have twenty-five days to shoot, and then about a week for post-production. Right. And so it's absolutely extraordinary when you think that these films which are made to quite a high technical standard and are, are very, very well made and well produced, but they just absolutely churned these things out in an incredibly short space of time. And the thing with Suzuki is he obviously got handed these very standard by the numbers, formulaic sort of scripts. And he literally was just someone who would take the thing and just say, well, how, can I make this interesting? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what can I do with this yeah. to make this yeah. so it isn't just another of the same old sort of stuff? So you, what you have in these films are these incredibly inventive camera work and amazing editing. 
and uh, very stylish set designs and all these things that he would just throw in there to just make it as, as visually interesting as possible. Uh, and there's an incredible sense of humor that he has. Uh, there's a, a huge uh, st a stream of satire that runs through all his films that he just has. You could just tell he's just having fun, being creative, and just trying to find ways to make these really um, otherwise very mediocre stories and things somehow make them into an interesting film that would engage the audience. And he does such an amazing job. I mean, you talked, uh, David, about originally you wanted to talk about Youth of the Beast, mm -hmm. but uh, we decided we couldn't uh, cover that one because we there would just be no way for Jonathan to see it. So we basically uh, decided to go with Branded to Kill instead. Uh, but any one of his films, uh, he's he's got several films that are really great uh, films, but this one in particular is just brilliant it's shot in black and white it's kind of a standard hitman thing i what was interesting about watching it this week is that i was struck about how how similar the plot line is is to these recent um keanu reeves films you know the, john wick the, yeah john, john, john wick. wick series about this <laughs> idea that there's this a secret society of hitmen and they just have these sort of random ranks. I don't know how mm -hmm. you would get to be number one or number three or whatever, but it's done with quite a lot of panache and a sense of humor about this idea is that you're number three, this guy's number two. <laughs> yeah, the whole time is just absurd, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's a guy at the beginning, he picks him up, his friend picks him up at the airport and he kind of says, oh, I'm number eight. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> I'm not doing it anymore, and I want to. I really want to get to be number four or whatever. And it's just this kind of. I want to qualify for the playoffs, or at least. You know? <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, it's just brilliant, brilliant stuff. Uh, and so the the plot line, as it were, is just basically um, Joe Shishido's character gets uh, assigned to kill some people, and it goes wrong. It goes a bit wrong. So as a consequence of that, his, uh, and uh, this number one killer is assigned to kill yeah. him as sort of a punishment. Well, and that's he, basically right. the plot, more or he less. Kills, yeah, he kills an innocent bystander because a butterfly landed on the barrel of his, <laughs> of his rifle. You know? so, <laughs> so he blew it. You know, you know, that's the ranking. It's not just the efficiency of the kill, but it's the style points that kind of distinguish the masters <laughs> from the, the wannabes. And so, yeah. you know, just, just, you know, and, and even the, the, the absurdity of, you know, uh, the, your victim always holds a woman by the left arm. You will have three tenths of a second of a straight view. I mean, everything is scripted out as far as where he's going to be planted, where the victim will be exposed. He's got to hit the mark and he's just slightly off and therefore all hell breaks loose. <laughs> yeah. And that um, with the butterfly is later used by Jim Jarmusch in uh, Ghost Dog mm -hmm. as well. Oh yeah, this is one of those films that definitely, you know, didn't set out to be an influential film. It was just yeah. like I say, Suzuki just doing his, you know, film of the month, so to speak. Yeah. Um, but but it's got so many just powerful visual moments, iconic scenes uh, that it's yeah. How could it not have an impact on future filmmakers who saw it and says, "Wow, that's wild! I, I want to do that myself." Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's true. We haven't even mentioned butterflies play quite an important part because this this girl that he gets involved with is just this incredibly creepy sort of character who (laughs) she doesn't say much, but she has when they go into her flat, she just has all these dead butterflies and she's obsessed with death, mm-hmm. isn't she? And she just is this incredible morbid character. Obviously yeah. all very tongue-in-cheek. A, a but, true uh, femme fatale, these, you know? Yeah, yeah, fem, yeah. she's femme the femme fatale, fatale that he just becomes totally obsessed with. And this thing with the boiled rice is quite funny, <laughs> that he finds the, the scent of boiled, just plain boiled rice cooking is kind of like an aphrodisiac for him. Yeah, that's and kind gets, of his you know, Viagra or whatever. So he always, when he's with a woman, he kind of says, quickly, cook some rice. <laughs> well, even at the thing. beginning, when they introduce that, he's at a bar, they're all having their Johnny Walker scotch, but he just wants to put a, put a rice cooker on for me. And, and the bartender's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and his wife is like, just trust him, just go for it, you know. <laughs> I, I commend us that we we took about fifteen minutes or so before we even got to the boiled rice bit. That's often the very first thing that's mentioned about this movie. Yes. <laughs> but we didn't go well, for the obvious. It's one of those right? standout things, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but you know, yeah. but because a, a true hitman can't drink, you got to keep your nerves razor sharp and your alertness yeah. at all times because it's not just when you're on the job there's danger lurking around every corner i mean it's like every you know kind of corny cliche about the man of danger living on the edge is is all sort of played up to the hilt here uh so there's a surface sort of straightness about it but all that subversive wit and irony just just below what that's what we were talking about earlier david just the mm-hmm. that that sly humor uh, yeah. That Suzuki is is definitely entertaining and amusing himself. Probably his his crew, his his circle, even the actors, I'm sure, are in somewhat on the joke. But he's also including the audience. You know those those hunters who are sitting there. You know, every Saturday night watching the movies, like, all right, guys, here you are, welcome back. Here's my latest thing. You know, and as he's doing this within kind of the almost not the anonymity but just the the profuse output from these studios and all the other movies that are kind of out there he wants to do something that's going to stand out just a little bit because he has been relegated to that b movie director role which apparently from the liner notes i saw he kind of held a little bit of a grudge you know somebody like uh, shohei imamura was ranked as an a director and suzuki is like I was around when he was just coming up or he's what makes him so much better than me. Why can't I be the A movie director? So there was a little bit of a frustration that you can sort of sense is also fueling his creative fire there. Um, Mm. You know, it was a pretty brilliant run. And I, and I will say also um, that this is not a typical Suzuki movie because there really is no typical Suzuki movie. This is Mm. just one one aspect of of his expressive and creative talent he made serious movies he made playful movies um you know he he really was quite the quite an accomplished director even though he never got the big stage platform uh you know to to make what were supposed to be classic films in his own era the uh, on the bfi has an article on their website british film institute on the sort of 10 great Japanese gangster films. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, they choose Youth of the Beast. Yeah, that's more they... of a conventional... That's why I think it would have made 
a slightly more compatible pairing with Scarface because they're both about hitmen coming up through the ranks and becoming sort of lords of their little domains. But I think this is actually a pretty good companion piece to the 32 version of Scarface because both of the films faced pretty significant censorship problems and Mm -hmm. both kind of created trouble for the people who were, you know, responsible for making them. And they both have that kind of uh, up from the bottom ranks into, you know, the, the next level of success or prominence, even though, you know, he's not really looking to control criminal terrain or, or an empire. He's looking to become number one or at least survive. Yeah. Uh, because that's, that's a, at this point, he knows number one is a man of almost supernatural <laughs> skills and, and when they finally do have their encounter that also is another piece of absurdity i, I don't know i want to yeah. go on too much but, but yeah we, we don't want to spoil too much for for uh, people yeah. when, when they first but, experience the film but there is a protracted yeah uh, sort of section of the film where these two have this i Ooh. guess you could call it a cat and mouse <laughs> yeah of, it's uh, like uh, thing but they actually sort of end up spending a bit of time together <laughs> and uh, and it's very funny yeah. and very uh, very absurd and surreal. These this sort of interaction that these two have, right. whilst it builds up to the final sort of uh, showdown between them. Yeah, they, they uh, can't just take each other out. They they can't just take each <clears throat> yeah. other out the first moment they have an open shot. There, there's got to be the right time and place. It's almost yes. like this sort of zen thing like you will know when it's the time to fire the shot you <laughs> yes. know we we will get to that moment eventually but until now we're just going to stay in this tension <laughs> yeah, you have to do it stylishly probably as well oh of course very yes. stylish that's Absolutely. one of the things about the film as well as being sort of funny and weird it's also incredibly cool oh um, yeah and uh joe shishido the uh the main actor i mean what a cool guy it's just oh yeah Extraordinary, despite the fact that he's had sort of, didn't he have sort of plastic surgery on his face that makes yeah. his implants? Face yeah. Implant. yeah, he was an early uh, uh, proponent of um, uh, having cosmetic surgery, and he had these implants put in his cheeks. So right. he has a very, very distinctive look about him, doesn't he? That he almost has, you know, like almost kind of a bit chipmunky in a mm-hmm. sense. Like, oh, yeah. he? he has like his, his cheekbones yeah. are very pronounced and he has a very interesting look to him. He yeah. was considered not leading man material because his cheeks were kind of thin and hollow. And so his, his face didn't have that roundness to it that uh-huh. is apparently, I mean, talk about you know, very refined degrees of competition. You, you know, your your cheeks are just a little bit sallow there. So, sorry, you're going to have to be a support guy. You can't be the front <laughs> and center man, you know. So he puts these implants in, and I'm sure that the surgical techniques were very crude by today's standards for this yeah. type of a procedure. And, uh, and, and he talks about that in one of the special features on the Criterion disc. But he did this as a career enhancer, and it turned him into this iconic tough guy. I mean, that was probably the roles he was most known for. I don't think he, he may have done some romantic leads. I mean, some of these actors did like 40 pictures over the course of a few years. Um, But he's known for his, his hitman and his gangster roles. And that's, you know, where he was at the youth of the beast as well. So yeah, he's, he's definitely playing off a certain image. um, And, 
you know, he epitomizes that kind of character. He's like, whatever his options are in life, he's, he's going for broke, you know, um, he's walking this lonely road. And there's kind of a certain romanticization of, of the, of, of the enigmatic isolated hitman who nobody can really know the depths of anguish and turmoil, but he's going to keep a lid on it and execute his duties with, with swagger and coolness and precision. I mean, he's kind of like that, that iconic idealized tough guy that again, a lot of young men might aspire to, or a lot of women might think is kind of sexy and attractive. I because in um, the Godfather doesn't uh, Marlon Brando have uh, cotton wool in his cheeks? Yeah, <laughs> yes, <clears throat> perhaps inspired by. Uh, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You know, it's not impossible that Francis Ford Coppola might have been been familiar with uh, Suzuki's films. I don't know. Yeah. So it's a bit difficult to say. Um, is it worth touching on? Because I know David, you you kind of touched on the fact that this film was a bit of a. Um, a seismic event in Suzuki's career right. because uh, apparently <clears throat> his films were very popular with sort of the young kind of college age crowd, mm-hmm. the student crowd in Japan at the time. And he had a little bit of a kind of a cult following as a sort of a, uh, sort of a, you know, counterculture uh, icon in Japan during the sort of the sixties and the early seventies. And what happened is when this film came out, apparently the head of uh, Nakatsu's studios just didn't like Suzuki's films at all. He was not a fan at all. And he seized on this particular film to kind of make an example of him. And Mm -hmm. uh, they decided after when this film came out that they decided to sack him, basically. Yeah. And then what happened was that Suzuki actually sued them for a wrongful dismissal. And there was a big, huge... Uh, sort of court case and actually a lot of the filmmaking community in Japan and the student and film fans and everyone got behind him and really supported him and and they had a it was quite a big public sort of um, uh, conflict that Suzuki had with with the studio about the fact that they let him go uh, and I thought that was really interesting is that oh, yeah. then he, he had this kind of um you know fan following just within japan i mean obviously at this time i don't think he would have been known outside of japan Uh, no in fact yeah these films were not really released in the states until i think maybe late 80s or even maybe early 90s when they became uh, in wider circulation or kind of like this offbeat discovery in western countries you know suzuki was was really just seen as kind of a factory guy he just he he just cranked them out and you know people who had a unique fascination with genre japanese films may have known about him but they were very hard to find you almost maybe had to live in japan or have some kind of direct and of course you know home video and stuff was still kind of in its infancy so these films really made their bigger impact i think probably in the in the 90s after people like tarantino and and jarmusch kind of discovered them and popularized them and and they, they were just seen as like whoa check this out you know this here's something you've never yeah. seen before you know um but yeah and i think i think suzuki had been kind of you know, pressing the limits a little bit within the studio system. And you're right, making an example, you know, we can't have all these directors just going rogue or getting too cutesy with the script. Um, and, and you know, from a certain mainstream point of view, yeah, this film 
is is kind of bewildering. I, I think I would even say, you know, with all respect, John, I'm, I'm really glad that you liked it. I wouldn't necessarily recommend this as my first introduction to Suzuki. Okay. Um, I, I actually think Tokyo Drifter, which was a film he made a couple before this one from, I think, either 66 or 67, might be a, a better entry. It's in color. It's got a great pop, fun sensibility. It's also about tough guys and hit men. Uh, but the right. set designs and the color is just eye-popping, and there's kind of some cool music. And, and there's, there's a great theme song intro to Brandon to Kill as well. But I think uh, Tokyo... Uh, drifters maybe just a little bit more accessible and understandable and then you can get back into some of his earlier stuff which like i say things like gate of flesh or story of a prostitute are actually somewhat serious stories about life in japan either during or after the war uh they still have his offbeat humor and touches but they're you know the thematic matter is is a lot more substantial these are kind of fluffy in in a sense of you know, what they're actually about or the implications. It's so stylized and kind of hyped up that, you know, maybe there are hit men in the audience watching and thinking about their lives, but really for most of this is kind of a voyeuristic spectacle of like, wow, how crazy is that? You know? Yeah, definitely. Well, I was talking to a friend in uh, Japan actually about, about this. And she said, apparently Joe Shishido so after he sort of carried on working in film, then he worked made some sort of television films. But she mm-hmm. said that he was also in like uh, sort of just ordinary TV programs on sort of quiz shows and things yeah. like that. He became so he a personality. Yeah, uh-huh. became a person. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it, it, I mean, because he's such a sort of well, cool, cool guy. It's just yeah. it seems incongruous to put him on a sort of dark, <laughs> you know, yeah, TV quiz show. But, I think uh, he becomes a little bit more mainstream. You know, he ages a little bit. He can't quite do the same rolling around and shooting stunts yeah. and things. And and he becomes just kind of this beloved character. So, you know, you sort of see the the warmer human side of Joe Shishido rather than the cold as ice killing machine. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Great. Well, was there anything else that you guys wanted to mention? I mean, the. the... <clears throat> I think, I mean, obviously there, there's the, the whole erotic angle too. I mean, this is another way of, of Suzuki kind of pushing limits and some of the, the sex scenes are, again, you know, you, you can't move your hips, but, but he's putting them in positions that the, the ludicrous thing that they're doing on the, the, uh, circular, the spiral staircase there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just, <laughs> really just nutty. I mean, you could just sort of imagine him just chuckling to himself as he's drawing this up, you know, the day before or the day of shooting. Apparently he was not a, not a Hitchcock storyboard, everything out to the final detail. He's, he's making it up as they go and kind of letting the creative inspiration of the moment guide him. And I just have to imagine for the crews and the actors, this, these had to be fun productions just because it was, as long as you can get on the wavelength and you're not taking yourself too seriously, uh, let's just go put a movie out there and see what happens with it. Um, so it, it is a shame. I mean, it cost him basically 10 years of his career. He was a, able to make a comeback, but it was kind of like he was kind of interrupted in the middle of this flow and uh, never you know, was able to resume it. But, you know, in some ways there's almost a, a providential aspect because the Japanese film industry itself kind of fell into collapse almost within a year or two after he was sacked. 
Um, and yeah, Nick Katsu really, more or less was near went out of business, and they just right. sort of got into the what they call the Roman porno business. Exactly, where they yeah. where they basically just started making sort of soft core sort of uh, you know films like that. And actually, oddly enough, on the Arrow Blu-ray of Branded to Kill, there is a uh, Nikatsu uh, remake of Branded to Kill that's included on. I didn't. Have oh, really? Time to watch okay. It. Yeah. Is so it I'm like more of a conventional telling of that story? Then, yeah. Yeah, it was called Trapped in Lust, and it was from 1973, <laughs> okay. and okay. it was basically a remake of Branded to Kill. Uh, that that's basically just like a like uh, with more sort of naked more nudity and okay uh, sure things and apparently the the main characters are transposed to all be like they change genders on all the okay, characters sure so female assassin a woman right. instead okay. of a man and uh, etc so that yeah. that's but but unfortunately I didn't have time to check it out um uh, be prior to recording the show I but the um for it. Sorry, I watched the trailer for it. Oh, did you? Yeah, um, because it comes with that. The, the, the DVD has a trailer uh, as well mm. as the film, and uh, well, it, it's it's different. Let's put it like that. Yeah. <laughs> a lot yeah. of fle- naked flesh, and uh, I couldn't really figure out if there was any. I mean, is there, what's the story? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it should be pointed out that that later film was not made by Suzuki. He didn't have oh, anything no, to do no. with it. It was made by by another director, but for the same studio. So Yeah, um, I'm sure Suzuki would have been happy to continue making films even into that new era of the Japanese mm-hmm. studio system or its collapse, but he was really just deprived of doing studio movies. I think he he did work in TV, he made commercials. I mean he still found a way to make a living. But in a certain sense he he was a bit of a martyr and, and being fired by his studio for making this film kind of cemented his legend, if you will. So, you know, mm-hmm. all's well that ends well. He was able to go on to make movies. He, he lived a long life. I think he lived past a, uh, age 100 and wow. just passed away a couple of years ago. Yeah, or several years mm-hmm. ago. I'm not sure how, how long it was exactly. But, uh, oh, I, I've got it playing on my monitor. Another another scene of kind of just some of the non-elliptical, or the, the ellipses of... of shortcuts like there's the one scene where he's going after some of his rivals and he throws a gas can into the room of the looks like this big bunker shoots the gas Mm -hmm. can the next scene the entire building is swarming and it's like how did that one gas can (laughs) ignite everything and then the guy comes running out his entire body his his suit is on fire he runs for his life runs up to a car and boom gets blown away instantly cut you know like everything is just jumps along so so well, frantically there's not even really a moment to absorb the impact of what just happened before you're on to the next thing already <laughs> yeah it, it has a definite kinetic energy that just keeps constantly moving and is so inventive right. with the way that the camera the compositions of the frame and then the way the camera will move mm-hmm. and then it will cut to a completely different sort of angle and stuff yeah and it has that kinetic energy um that bit that you mentioned about that chap running who's on fire yeah. running that they had an interesting story that I don't know, I read or saw in one of the little supplements, but they said that he wanted him to run much, much further. But apparently they, even as it was, they, from, from a safety point of view, they had to get him to stop short because, and they had to have people with, um, 
you know, fire hydra, fire hoses yeah. or something yeah. uh, hidden on, on, on the ground underneath the, the thing so they could quickly jump up and put him out. Well, that's the thing. Yeah. yeah it they, was they burning through. <laughs> yeah. Whatever they, protective uh, layer they had on him, it's a very wide shot. And I, I did think about it. It's like, there's nobody around to snuff those flames, even when yeah. they say cut. You know, it's going to take a minute to, for somebody to get up there. So fascinating. I need to find yeah. out. Yeah. Well, apparently they did push the limits of the safety <laughs> for, of, for that man. And as it yeah. was, he actually wanted to go further. He wanted uh, him to keep running even further out of the shot. Yeah. But yeah. they just across the horizon there. Yeah. Said, no, you can't do that because he's literally going. Gonna, wow. you know burn to death or whatever so yeah um but it's just stuff like that like he did say it like I, I read in one of his interviews or something that he said quite often he would literally think of what they were going to do the next day the night yeah. before he would yeah. like sit down and think okay this is what we're shooting tomorrow how am I going to do this? And he would just literally come up with the ideas then and then just show up on set the next morning and go, okay, this is what we're going to do. So it must have been quite of, you know, an exhilarating way of making films because yeah. you'd always be sort of on the, you know, having to think on your feet and, and uh, yeah. stuff. So and Jean-Luc Godard was doing this type of stuff around the same time mm. with like two or three things I know about her and Made in the USA and, and Weekend mm. where he'd have a basic concept going in. I mean, and, and I think Suzuki and Godard actually can be kind of seen as, as peers, you know, in mm. that how they played with genre, how they made films very short, very personal. I mean, Suzuki, I don't know that he went into the same sort of political or philosophical depths that Godard at least aspired to, mm -hmm. but they really did have that very personal approach uh, and and really immerse themselves in the craft of filmmaking and mm -hmm. using all of that grammar to kind of make it a more personal project, even when they're dealing with pot boiler material. One thing I should mention, it's got a great soundtrack film oh yeah another Japanese very cool class, mm -hmm. which is uh another nice part of the film yeah yeah, yeah. Lots of nice jazzy kind of funky mm -hmm. kind of things mm -hmm. going on in the soundtrack as well lots, lots yeah. of terrific stuff i mean these films uh branded to kill and and some of the others I, I should mention actually some of the others because um like i said i'm quite a fan of his and you mentioned about uh youth of the beast Okay, <clears throat> which yeah. unfortunately this is out of print now, but this is from Masters of Cinema, and I think this film is absolutely brilliant, incredibly entertaining. Copy. Yeah, there's the Criterion <laughs> disc, but it's a real shame that this is currently not available on streaming or anything because it's in a very entertaining film, and it's one of his color ones, so that mm. sort of adds to it as well. There's some really inventive moments in that. And uh, another film that I think is absolutely brilliant, I'm pretty sure you can still get this, is uh, Detective Bureau 23, Go to Hell Bastards, it's called. <laughs> and, <laughs> the title is <laughs> I know, it's such a brilliant title. But, but this film as well is just absolutely brilliant, just so entertaining and fun yeah. to watch. And just, um, I can't recommend that highly enough. That's available from Arrow. And I'm pretty sure that's still in print. You could still get that. Um, and and uh, Arrow Player, they have a streaming service as well. And usually a lot of the stuff that they have uh, available on disc, they also have on their streaming service. So if people don't want to actually splash out for 
for physical media. They, if you just subscribe for a month or two to the Arrow player, you could probably watch a lot of this stuff on there. Um, Arrow's also done this. Uh, there, there's two volumes to this, yep. but Suzuki's only covered in the first one. But this is called Nikatsu Diamond Guys. And this is just a compilation of different sort of youth and gangster films, Yakuza films and stuff from, from uh, the Nikatsu vaults. Uh, and Suzuki's got one or two films in the first volume. And there's also these two really great box sets that Arrow did yeah. of uh, mm-hmm. Suzuki the early years. So there's two volumes. And this is just, again, just a compilation of they, they've each got about five or six films in them. And they're all different types of genres and stuff that Suzuki did. And it just shows you that sort of, you know, when he was just a contract director working for the studio, and they would just hand him these scripts and just say, this is what you're doing this month. And he would just churn out these films. And there's a lot of really entertaining, fun stuff on these. So hours of entertainment there for for people if they want to check those out, if they want to dive in on the deep end. I do want to say, though, that that picture of Suzuki on the cover is not what he looked like in his early years. (laughs) No, (laughs) no, that would be later, you know. (laughs) But he he did become this kind of beloved, iconic elder statesman of a sort, and there's some pretty great interviews that he gives looking back, and he he looks back with a smile. Obviously, I'm sure there was some, some bitterness and some real frustration that he went through as his career was kind of pulled the rug out from under him. But it, he's got it all in perspective now, and uh, yeah, he became a pretty beloved old man of cinema. Yeah, definitely. There's lots of really great interviews with him, actually, that are supplements on some of these discs and uh, in the magazines and online and stuff. He was he was a very clever chap, and he he has lots of interesting stories and things to say about the production of the films and the, the work ethic, and he's very sort of self depreciating as well which is quite oh, yeah. uh, quite a nice thing like you know he, he makes comments about when he did work for shishuku or uh, whatever the studio before he went to nikatsu he he uh, he said that uh, he was completely useless as an assistant director and he used to just spend the time picking flowers and sitting on the bus <laughs> <laughs> while everyone else did all the work. <laughs> he wasn't a take orders kind of guy, I guess you could say, right? No, no, he's just a dreamer and, uh, and stuff like that. But anyway, he's got, he's, he's quite a character and quite an interesting chap. And uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of his stuff actually. Well, obviously. Of yeah. These that's a pretty but... <laughs> nice collection. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I definitely would recommend that people go and investigate further. If you just want to see some really, interesting and clever and uh, entertaining Japanese genre films. Yeah. Uh, and uh, definitely Branded to Kill is one of his one of his key titles, I think, as well. It's just absolutely brilliant, fun. And again, it's the kind of film that you could watch over oh, yeah. and over again and get different stuff out of it, notice different things, pick yeah. up other little details and stuff. So yeah. it's really, really worth checking out. Yeah. Uh, for American uh, listeners or viewers, you know, the, a lot of those films are available on the Criterion channel. Uh, another testament to the the value or the, you know, the, the production quality is that this was recently released as a 4K transfer and it looks great. And even the Criterion channel transfer is from the 4K master and it looks really good as a streamer. Um, so yeah, I did, buy, I would not, I don't always upgrade my Blu-rays to 4Ks, but this one I did. And it's a very nice package. Although I will also say that the the, the booklet and the Criterion Blu-ray from 
don't know, like 10 years ago. Uh, now it's just a little fold-out pamphlet. So they've actually downgraded the print insert, sad to say. But it's still a 4K transfer, and it looks great and uh, highly recommended, whether it's your first or your 10th Suzuki film. Definitely mm-hmm. a, a good a good entry to the collection. Yeah, it seems to be that um, a lot of the these labels now are cutting cutting back on the print yeah, inserts and things like that, unfortunately. Yeah. But... Um, Oh, I also uh, have to. Uh, I, I want to celebrate his uh, the Shishido Goro's character. Goro is the name of the character. His escape on the on the hot air balloon. <laughs> oh yeah, another another little absurd little moment where he's you know he's he's putting his finger to the wind to see how, like when the balloon will will blow and rise and using that to to make his hit and then use the the balloon to <laughs> get get yeah. out of dodge. Just so so many crazy moments that uh, just really enjoyed about this film. Yeah, it's a, it's a great film. Brilliant. Well, well, guys, we're, um, I think just in the interest of time, I think we might um, yeah. have to think about wrapping it up, but um, it's been a great conversation and a couple of really, really great films. Uh, David, I hope you'll come back and uh, see us again oh. another time because oh, this it's is... been a great conversation. It's really been good. a lot of fun, very good time, and it's always nice for me just to sort of be the guest and let somebody else do the driving. So thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Really good. No, it's, it's been great. Thank you so much for coming and getting up so early, because I know for you it's quite early on a Saturday morning, so uh, we do appreciate that. And uh, folks, uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Uh, we got a couple other uh, really interesting guests lined up uh, for, for the next few episodes, and thanks for tuning in. And uh, we will be back in just a couple of weeks for another uh, episode. So hopefully we'll see you then. Yes. See you then. Bye. Take care, everyone. Goodbye. Get up to... Oh. Oh.